The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Today is episode 13 and this is our first episode of 2016, so I hope the year has started well for all of you opera fans out there. If you are listening to our podcast for the first time, then here is a little bit of background information for you. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and I am part of the Lectures and Community Engagement Team here at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved art form. And to do that, we draw from a variety of different programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. As we reach the midway point in the current opera season, we thought it would be fun to share with you some bonus material from outside the regular Met season roster. Today's episode is presented by the Met Guild's Director of School Programs and Community Engagement, Stuart Holt, and it is all about a rarely heard version of the Cinderella story, the opera Cendrillon by Jules Massenet. This opera has actually never appeared on the Met stage, and this lecture was originally given as part of a lecture series called Unknown Masterworks. Hearing Stuart give this lecture was actually the first time I had ever heard any of the music from this opera, and I am guessing that this will be a first time for many of you listening as well, and I can honestly say that Stuart totally sold me on this work, and he really brought to life this hidden treasure of a score for me, so I am thrilled to be able to share this lecture with all of you. Without any further delay, I give you Stuart Holt discussing Massenet's Cendrillon. It's so odd for me to like be introduced as the person that speaks since normally I'm the person that gives the pre-show announcement. Well, thanks for joining me this afternoon and I want to applaud you for your sense of adventure, for coming and experiencing things that you might not know a lot about. When Jane and I sat down with Naomi to talk about what we wanted to do with our add-on series for this summer, one of the things that kept coming up were operas that we really loved or groups of operas that we loved that we wanted to find a way to be able to talk to you about them. So thus was born this idea of this unknown masterwork series and giving you the chance to explore these operas, the music of the operas, and for us to discuss perhaps why we don't see them on stage as frequently as we personally would like. So let's dive into today's topic. As Kyle said, we are talking about Cendrillon today. And first, a confession. For those of you that came to my lecture last summer about mezzo-sopranos, I adore this opera. It is by far one of my personal favorite pieces to experience. My discovery of it came when I was teaching at Florida State University, and I was preparing a scenes program for my opera workshop class. Now, having more women than men in the class, I was not too thrilled with the idea of programming more scenes 
from Suara Angelica and Dialogue of the Carmelites. So after a discussion with a colleague, they said, why don't you take a look at Cendrillon and see if you can't find something that you like. And thus, this new romance with this opera was born. We know that it was written by Jules Massenet, who was born May 12th, 1842, in the Loire part of France. He was the youngest of four children. His mother was a gifted pianist, and his father was an iron worker. He began his musical studies at age 11 at the Paris Conservatory, although if you read his rather exciting, not so reliable memoir, he says that he auditioned at the conservatory when he was nine. Um, as he progressed in his studies, he uh, learned to really love composition and became a composition student of the composer Ambroise Thomas, who we know composed the operas Hamlet and Mignon. Now, by 1859, his father was in failing health and he had moved away from living at home to living with an aunt. Now, he didn't want to have her be the sole breadwinner to contribute to the household, so he went and he got a job. He got a job playing the triangle in the opera orchestra at the Théâtre de Gymnase. Now, he quickly moved from playing the triangle to playing the kettle drums, but, as a, but at a different theater, the Théâtre Lyrique, where he played three times a week, earning 50 cents per performance. Now, these experiences playing in the opera orchestra would be highly influential on his like composing sort of genre and also his style. He would continue to play with the orchestra until he was 21 when he won the Prix de Rome, a coveted prize that, as you may know, was won by Charles Gounod, Georges Bizet, and his composition teacher, Ambroise Thomas. It was in Rome that he said, I began to live. There it was that during my happy walks with my comrades, painters or sculptors, and in our talks under the oaks of the Villa Borghese or under the pines of the Villa Pamphili, I felt my first stirrings of admiration for nature and for art. Now I had ceased to be merely a musician. Now I was much more than a musician. This ardor, this healthful fever still sustains me. For we musicians, like poets, must be the interpreters of true emotion. To feel, to make others feel, therein lies the whole secret. And I think it was this desire to make the audience feel that would make him the most successful composer of opera in France at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, let's be honest here. We're a small group today. Who of us doesn't react or feel in that love duet that happens in the Saint-Sulpice scene in Manon, where she professes her love for Desgrieux, or Pourquoi me réveiller in Werther, where Werther is pouring his heart out, or even the exciting Esprit de l'air in Esclarmonde, where we hear that orchestra, dun da 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 dun da 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 We're so drawn into that feeling of what Massenet is creating. And I think that this idea of wanting you, the audience, to feel is part of what drew him to the story of Cendrillon. It's his 15th work, and it comes after Werther, Manon, and Thais, and occurs also in the middle of his career. So this wasn't sort of something that he just started for fun. He had had some great successes and was looking for something a little bit different. As we know, it's based on the 
fairy tale that was written by the French author Charles Perrault and has a libretto, a libretto by Henri Quint. Now, they had already collaborated together on La Navarrese and Sappho, but this was a shift from the realism and the verismo styles that they had already explored. In a way, it gave them a permission to play with something that was non-realistic, both in structural and musical score. They even went as far as to specify that this piece was not an opera, but a fairy tale set to music, and chose to call it Conte des Fées en Quatre Actes et Six Tableaux, Tale of Fairies in Four Acts and Six Tableaux. The piece is a combination of music, dance, and scenic display, offering a musical and visual spectacle of an enchanted and long ago world. I would say that this label of a fairy tale opera is probably one of the reasons why we don't see the piece perform very well. Creating a world of fairies, let's be honest, requires an inventive and creative stage director and a company that's willing to make a rather large monetary investment. The tableaus themselves are cause for pause, but we'll talk about that more later. I have a feeling that the plot of Cinderella is well known to all of you. It's a compact work about a beautiful, hardworking girl that in the end wins the heart of a prince with the help of a fairy godmother and a glass slipper. What is not normally known is, is that the original story contained a poem at the end that summarized the moral of the story, and there was two of them. The first moral, graciousness supersedes beauty and is a true gift of the fairies. And the second, even those endowed with the best talents may not succeed without the help of a fairy godmother. Now that is quite a moral indeed, I, I must say. Now, unlike Rossini and his librettist Ferretti, Massenet and Caen retain the basic skeleton of Perrault's plot, which does differ from most modern retellings of the opera in the fact that Cendrillon's father is still very much alive, but merely unable to confront his overbearing wife. And there is also no scene at the beginning where the stepsisters and the stepmother prevent Cendrillon from attending the ball. In fact, we don't even meet Cendrillon in the opera until after everyone has left to go to the ball. But Caen and Massenet also embellished a bit on Perrault's story. I alluded to the use of visual spectacle and tableaus, and there's where we see these embellishments. They included the entire chorus of fairies to help prepare Cendrillon to get ready for the ball. There's an extensive entrance of guests to the ball. And there's also this really fantastic dreamlike sequence for Cendrillon and Prince Charming when they wander into the forest or the domain of the fairies after having been separated from each other after the ball in Act 3. Now, Massenet was a very hands-on composer, and especially so with this piece. Not only did he work closely with Caen on the structure, he was also heavily involved in the rehearsals, attending 60 out of the 98 rehearsals at the Opera Comique prior to the premiere. So that's a lot of time to spend in the theater working on a piece. The opera debuted on May 24, 1899. By this point, Massenet is 57 years old. Now, the piece was again a huge hit with both critics and the general public alike. 
Louis Schneider, a critic at the time, said, Massenet dusted the tale of Perrault and the libretto of Henri Quint with a fine powder of sounds. And the critic Adolphe Julien said, it must have been a pleasant pastime for Massenet to busy himself with this light poem, to exercise the skill and experience in inventing music equally airy and diminutive. And it is only just to say that he succeeded. The opera was performed 50 times in its inaugural season and quickly moved to other cities around the world, arriving in the US in New Orleans of all places in 1902. For those of you that don't know, of course, New Orleans is a historically French city, so almost all of their operas in the beginning were only presented in French. So to have Cendrillon there was a big hit. So we see Brussels, Milan, New Orleans, Chicago, New York, and London. So the piece has been recently seen in New York at Juilliard, and City Opera did a production of it several years ago but it has yet to actually grace the stage at the Metropolitan Opera. So we've gotten a lot of information about things. Let's start to dive into this music. In writing Cendrillon, Massenet created a score that is a bit of a pastiche in ways. It's a combination of Baroque, a bit of Rossini, opera buffa, a hint of French grand opera, and even some precursors to Strauss and also some allusions to Puccini in the vocal writing. I think that it's this hodgepodge style that makes it ripe for labeling as trite and frothy, but I think you'll see that it has Massenet's own personal style and it has this amazing pathos and sheer magic to it. We'll start at the beginning with the overture. The opera begins with a very regal fanfare that's reminiscent of Baroque opera. Now it is very unlike anything that we saw in Werther, or even Manon for that matter. It places us firmly in a distant time. So let's take a listen to the opening of the opera. Lots of big brass, we get a big womp on the kettle drum right away. Something that is not really leading us into something that's pretty and beautiful, sort of strikes us over the head. Now I said that it was reminiscent of Baroque, so let's take a look at this clip that we've got here that's going to show us how we see that comparison. When I first started looking at this piece, when I heard the overture, I thought, you know, what it reminds me of is the opening of the Royal Fireworks music by Handel. So I was looking for a clip to show you, and I came across this production that's from the BBC Proms that uses uh, original uh, uh, instruments. So we get a real sense of that connection to this piece. So let's take a look at this clip.
Now, as I said, unlike in Rossini's Cenerentola, where we meet Cenerentola and the sisters first, Massenet chooses to introduce us to the people of the house first. So after we move out of the overture, the first people that we end up meeting are the servants who work for the family. Now, Madame Altelier and her husband Pandolf are both trying to attain a place within the court. So unlike what we see in Disney, they're sort of working to rise themselves up from just being lowly courtiers to being higher on the status level. But they do have a slew of people who work for them. Unfortunately, Madame Altelier, she's a horrible boss. None of these people want to work for her. And so what Massenet plays for us is, is he reminds us of opera buffa by having all of these servants come running out onto the stage. It's very like patter, chatter, 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 very, very angry. And they end up exiting after they've expressed their frustration with their employer, leaving Pandolf alone on the stage. Now, we're going to listen to what Massenet does for him, which is also write this patter aria, which is kind of interesting because it ends up creating this older musical style, which continues what we've started with this Baroque gesture at the beginning, and establishes a sort of nervous energy for Pandolf. I mean, he just doesn't seem to be comfortable in his own skin, probably because he's trying to fight against his own wife. And it also establishes him as sort of being a somewhat comedic character. He's not really a sympathetic father, but perhaps he's somebody who makes his child laugh and wants to make her feel comfortable. So it, it establishes a real sense with the opera that we're going to sort of have this faraway land, but we're also going to have this moment of comedy uh, where we end up experiencing this character. Ends up being that the next people that arrive, of course, are Madame Altelier, our hated boss, and the two stepsisters, Naomi and Dorothée. Now, immediately, Massenet continues on this comedic line, not only through the music, but Laurent Pellet chooses to costume these women in ways that makes us as the audience immediately laugh. They become these grotesques, almost. Beyond just their angry, horrible personalities, their clothing is horrible and loud as well. Once we have all four of the principals on stage, Massenet brings the chorus back, again retaining this opera buffa feel, and he continues to add voices, almost creating a Rossini crescendo. So starting with one, adding another, getting louder and louder and louder as we go along. 
it ends up being that he wants to amp up the comedy for us and amp up this connection to opera buffa and who we think of normally Rossini or Donizetti. So we're going to take a look at the end of this scene where everybody erupts in comedy and they end up exiting the stage. We have this comedy of Rossini and Donizetti, and then it segues right back into that Baroque sort of bram, bam, 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 almost as if he's bookending these scenes. Now, in writing this piece, Massenet really explored the use of the mezzo-soprano voice. We know that he was very fond of this voice type after seeing his use for title characters in both La Navarrese and Werther. But in this opera, he's writing for four different mezzo-sopranos the stepsister Naomi, the stepmother Madame La Atelier, Prince Charming, and Cendrillon. Now, if we want to get down to brass tacks and talk about music scholarship, they will probably tell you that, true, the prince is actually a type of voice called a falcon soprano, which is a mezzo-soprano that has an extremely ample and powerful voice in the middle register, but extends up into that high register, almost close to a soprano. And while Cendrillon, when it initially premiered, the title character was sung by a soprano, it has now become the territory of mezzo-sopranos. And in cases for both Cendrillon and for the prince, Massenet was able to explore colors that, you know, allowed the vocal line and later in duets that allowed them to have an extended vocal range. He said that by having that extended vocal range, it truly allowed these characters to be treated as lost, desperate children and not fully realized adults. Now, after the comedy of this opening scene, we finally get to meet Cendrillon, or as her father calls her, Lucette. So we're going to listen to a couple of things in this. Listen to how the orchestra introduces her aria, and then also how Kant uses the text. What do we learn about Lucette right away when we meet her? <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's take a listen. I love how he starts this aria really simplistically. He uses oboes and strings in octaves to introduce a thematic line, really giving it a folk-like quality. It's much more serious than anything else that we've heard up to this point. And it also observes the detail that Massenet brought to all of his scores. In the score, when you look at it, he gives a stylistic marking that, a marking that says, d'une oleur mélancolique with a wistfulness or melancholy. We also get some insight into Cendrillon. She certainly is not angry or resentful for her sisters. She sings about how happy they are and how they basically get everything that they deserve. She doesn't seem to want to be upset at anything. Well, I know that by this point, you're all excited to get to the ball and say, get on with the story. And if we follow the story, we have to get ready, and that requires a visit from the fairy godmother. In Cendrillon, Massenet and Count refer to her as la fée, and they use the coloratura soprano for this role. We all know the coloratura soprano is light and bubbly and perhaps otherworldly compared to the earthier voices that he's writing for in the rest of the cast. So we're going to listen to the, her first appearance when she arrives and listen to what Massenet does with the vocal line and also with the orchestra underneath her.
So really, just like, expect, I know, you want more. I have to tell you, these clips are somewhat short. I wish I could indulge, but we'll, we'll indulge a little later, I promise. These amazing arpeggios and vocalises that dance over this extremely delicate and light orchestra. It's like cotton candy. Le Fay acts as the mistress of ceremonies, sort of asking all of, the, all of the fairies to aid in the creation of the dresses uh, and also the carriage. This is one of those first scenes that Cain and Massenet added to the story for our first tableau, this inclusion of all of these otherworldly spirits. Yet this scene uses some of Cain's beautifully descriptive language, which I just could not resist sharing. The Fae says, in order for you to fashion a magically silky dress for her, may your hands skillfully steal from the radiant stars the subtle splendor of their joyous rays of light from the moonlight. Borrow its wane colors. Borrow from the rainbow its harmony of colors. And that for her bouquet by you may be gathered in a love draught, the sense most sweet. And you, Prepare the carriage. All the little birds will lend us their wings. Frail insects will be our steeds. The moths and butterflies, the slight dragonflies, artful artisans furnish us with gemstones. Go a-gathering in the prairies, ladybirds and fireflies. Let gnats and beetles reflect the pure sparkle of rubies. Make every tear of dewy night sparkle with the dazzle of diamond. And to illuminate her path, you will hide some glowworms amid the tulips and jasmine. If that doesn't conjure a scene in your mind, I don't know what does. I mean, it's brilliantly done. So let's take a look at the end of the scene. <laughs> The scene, of course, comes to a familiar end with Le Fay giving Cendrillon the glass sip slipper, which she tells her, which of course will make her unrecognizable to anybody at the ball, and warns her, of course, she must be home before the last stroke of midnight. Now, Massenet alternates between a lovely lyrical vocal line and march-like rhythms in the orchestra. Le Fay calls for the carriage. There is no Disney magic of a pumpkin turning into a carriage on the stage. She simply waves her hand and the carriage appears. Now dressed and ready for the ball, the scene comes to a joyous close with this amazing dialogue between Centrion, the Fay, and the entire female chorus of fairies. So here we go, we're going to go to the end of the scene and we're going to rush off to the ball. 
action then shifts uh, to the palace. And traditionally, when we think of the story, everybody just goes to the palace and they go to the ball, and that's where the story goes. But they decide to give us some insight into the prince himself and a scene in his bedroom. Now, much like the opening of the opera, where all of the staff at the Altalier house came running out, all of the staff at the castle comes to the prince, and they tell him that it is a direct command that he must attend and enjoy the ball. He is not necessarily a happy young man, and left alone, he talks about what he would do if he finally met the woman of his dreams. Now, this is the Falcon soprano that we were talking about, so it's important to sort of listen to how Massenet uses the vocal line. The range really asks much of the singer, but allows for an extremely emotional color palette of sounds. Now, I will say you may hear some connections in the opening music that he created for Centurion, both in the vocal line and in the orchestra. It's interesting. So I, the big thing for Massenet was the sound of the voices. So being able to, and you're going to hear it when we get to the love duets, that the duets play vocally closer together. So being able to have those two female voices allow them to have this close synergy and this different sense of passion. There's a commercial recording that exists of Cendrillon that is the only commercial audio recording featuring uh, Frederico von Stade as the uh, Cendrillon and Nicolai Guetta, I believe, is the, um, is the uh, Prince Charming. And while it's a beautiful recording, the duets take on a completely different idea. I think, to be perfectly frank, I think that's part of the reason why we also don't see it, because audiences are like, that's not a man, it's two women. So they can't suspend belief and pretend that, oh, it's Prince Charming with a female voice. When City Opera did it, they made the choice to have a tenor sing the, to, the, to sing the role. And there are other companies that have done that when they produce the piece. Um, when we did it at FSU, we had a mezzo-soprano be the prince and the 
mezzo-soprano be the Cendrillon, and then Madame la Altelier was sung by a countertenor, um, and nobody realized it. They just, they just put his first initial in the program. So again, it's about what we see and what we hear. Um, but I love that Massonet uses this Falcon soprano to really show a lot of athleticism that the female voice can do that the male voice can't necessarily do. That ability to plunge into the bottom of the voice and then ride it all the way up to the top is just absolutely gorgeous. Now, in this scene, the courtiers and the king return and prepare the prince for the ball. And as we move into the ball, we get to those other extended tableaus that I talked to you about. Um, here, Massonet truly celebrates the idea of dance, and specifically character dance in French opera. He created five different entrances uh, for different people that each evokes a different style and a different character. Because of time, we're only going to watch the first one, the entrance of the eligible daughters. Musically, he uses dance styles from periods that harken back again to a forgotten time. He even includes a dance called the Rigadon, which is a dance closely associated with, closely associated with Louis XIV. Uh, in this excerpt, listen to how he uses these sort of foreign, faraway dance motifs.
this is the first of the four tableaus that happen. So there's four more that happen, happen after that. Finally, the mother and the stepsisters arrive in the uh, fourth tableau, or the actual fifth one. Uh, and then finally, Cendrillon arrives, just as she does in the story that we all know. And uh, the prince falls immediately for her. She is, of course, wearing her glass slippers, so her family does not recognize her. They just see her as this glorious woman in white who arrives. Finally, the prince sends everybody away, and they're left alone. And Massenet and Cam break out of this grand opera tradition that we've been witnessing and move into a moment of really beautiful simplicity. Cam, again, uses the text to create an, an ethereal scene. As Centrion says, you have said it. I am the dream and must pass with there remaining a trace, as vanishes a reflection of the sky that one sees gliding over water, which the wind furrows and impels, and which soon will lose itself in the moss. He sets this text with a spare accompaniment from the strings and the rest of the orchestra. When the prince responds that he would rather die than lose Cendrillon, the orchestra swells into a declamatory sweeping statement from the strings, very much like Puccini. Massenet increases the tempo and uses repeating notes in a stepwise motion, enhancing this sense of desperation that the prince suddenly feels, making us, the audience, feel it as well. The prince pleads, saying that her eyes tell the truth and that she loves him as well. Cannes libretto is heartfelt, straightforward, and every bit the part of the fairy tale that we love. We're going to watch the scene in two parts. So let's take a look at the first part of the scene and see how it plays out, and then we'll talk a little bit more.
sort of vocal writing right there, and we'll get a little bit more in the final part of the duet, is part of why I love the use of the two mezzo-sopranos and not a tenor. Because there's times when the voices overlap each other and almost sing in unison. And it creates such a more romantic feel than when we hear that male and female voice together, at least to my ears. It was that final phrase, vous êtes mon prince charmant, that caught the attention of the critic Adolphe Julia. He said, it seems to me that the most graceful passage in the whole world is probably the tender declaration of Cendrillon, you are my prince charmant, where the oboe repeats bar by bar with intense sweetness what the voices just sung. I don't think I could say it better. What turns somewhat into two separate solo lines, turns into duet with them almost finishing each other's phrases, becoming a true duet where they're singing at the same time. As they profess their love, the orchestra continues to swell until they're singing in unison, but with separate texts. The orchestra continues that sensitive treatment that we heard in the beginning of this scene, at times pulling out solo lines in the violin, cello and viola, somewhat similar to what Massenet did with the meditation in Thais. As the duet builds to the end, the orchestra builds and then sweeps back to this beautiful, sensitive, intimate moment. Of course, they're interrupted by the arrival of what else? Midnight. We're going to move into Act 3 and Act 4, and full disclosure, we are going to skip a lot of really gorgeous music, so I encourage you to go home and explore this on your own. Cendrillon returns home, making it before her family, and she immediately goes to her room, still dreaming of the night and the chance encounter with the prince. The family arrives, of course, discussing the mysterious woman in white who arrived at the ball. 
Madame is less than pleased with this woman's arrival and is extremely upset that she dashed any chances that her daughters would get any FaceTime with the prince. Now, Pandolf expresses some sort of disagreement with this and says she seemed to be a rather gentle girl and he feels that that's an important quality. Madame could not disagree more with that statement and launches into a, a tirade that is unlike anything we have heard up to this point. Now remember, Massonet was writing for four mezzo-sopranos and Madame Altavier is a mezzo-soprano that, to be totally honest, is actually probably much more of a contralto with the way that he explores the bottom of the voice. She really establishes her and then she sort of gets this little Shana to be able to show off. 
Now, after this moment, there's a lovely duet between Pandolf and Cendrillon, where he expresses his remorse about his choices, knowing that, really, Cendrillon has sacrificed a lot uh, for him to pursue their spot at court. However, Cendrillon believes that she can do much to help her father, and the way that she can help her father is basically go to the forest and die alone. A little dramatic, but I guess if we think of her as a teenager, a lot of teenagers are dramatic. So she decides that once she's left alone, the only way to help her father is to go off to the forest. She says a beautiful prayer that she offers to her mother before running off at where she plans to die. Now this arietta is full of plaintive lyrical lines as she says goodbye to her belongings and her room and a chair that she used to sit at the feet of her mother, which I find interesting because in Manon, Manon says goodbye to the little table that she and Desclieux shared together. So Massenet has a fixation with furniture pieces and the emotional connection they have for us. Uh, it's here that Kat includes the only mention of her birth mother, uh, and it's a particularly moving moment as Massenet sets a lullaby that her mother sung to her over a single note accompaniment as she remembers her mother, Cendrillon cries out and the mood quickly shifts. Massenet literally crashes in with the orchestra. She makes a decision to flee to the forest and sacrifice herself for her father. As Massenet reflects with this resolve, we get these strong chords in the brass and then a crash into the conclusion. Let's take a listen.
Oh, so dramatic as we lead into this final scene. I continue to be amazed, especially in this piece, at Massonet's ability to shape these characters through the use of the score and the uh, vocal writing. Personally, I think that Sandrine is so closely tied to the character development and even more evocative than so many of his other pieces. The next scene is the final tableau in the land of the fairies at the foot of the magical oak, another scene that, of course, Massonet and Kant added for dramatic effect. The scene opens with the chorus of female spirits and La Fée. Massonet notes in the score that the female chorus at this point is the cœur invisible, or invisible chorus. And they begin in a wordless ah. So there's no words, creating this ethereal other world effect until, the, until La Fée, singing over them almost like the decoration of a cake, calls the spirits to tell her of Cendrillon and the prince's endeavors. This is a rather extended scene, so we're only going to partake of a few minutes at the beginning. So let's take a look at the opening of this tableau. and so beautiful, really lovely, just harp and strings underneath as she sings over it. As the scene continues, Sandrine arrives, and the prince, too, has been drawn into the forest. Uh, and They can't see each other, thanks to the magical enchantment of the Fae, but they can hear each other. They quickly recognize each other's voices, and Sandrine says that the prince is her Prince Charming, and when asked who she is, she says that she is Lucette. They launch into the second major duet in the opera. Massenet sets the vocal writing just as close as he did in their initial duet, at times even singing in unison as well as echoing each other. They, big, they beg the Fae to let them see each other. This scene has all that lush vocal writing that's evocative of both Puccini. It's important to remember that, de, that La Boheme had only debuted three years earlier than this. So there was a chance that Massenet is being influenced by this. And also what we would later hear in Strauss in his duets for two females that really pulls on our heartstrings. Let's take a listen.
So, of course, La Fay grants their wish, and they see each other, and the scene draws to a close. Uh, they're enveloped in a magical sleep at the base of the oak, at the oak, and it's a glorious conclusion to the end of that scene and almost the end of the opera. As we move to the end of the opera, Massenet and Caen sort of took some liberties of their own. Uh, somehow, Lucette is discovered wandering in a daze next to a river by her father. He takes her back to the house, and in her daze, she discusses the... Uh, fairy and the glass slipper and meeting the prince and Pandolf tells her that that really was only a dream until it's revealed that the king has announced that all of the single ladies in the land must come to the castle to try on the slipper. So of course Cendrillon begs the fay to help her get to the castle to try on the slipper. In the final scene the ladies arrive and everybody tries on the slipper. All is lost as the prince declares, if I can't find the woman that fits this slipper, I am going to die. Again, these dramatic teenagers, they're all about death. It ends up being that all seems lost when all of a sudden the fay appears to everybody and reveals Cendrillon. We're going to watch that final scene, but before we do, I sort of want to wrap up this piece and leave you with this glorious final scene. Amazing music, fantastic singing, and an accessible story I'm sure by this point you're asking uh, me, well, why don't we see it more? Well, as I said earlier, I think that the fairy tale sort of lends itself as not being a serious piece for the opera. I also think that what was a hit with the original audiences in that it offered an escape to a land of enchantment and a chance to infuse the world with beauty and mystery are partly the reasons why it's sort of compared neg negatively to his other works nowadays. There's also, honestly, the vocal challenges. We've heard how far it stretches the voice, and we don't have always those singers who can do that. We also don't have singers who want to necessarily add these roles to their repertoire if they're not going to be able to perform them on a more regular basis. Finally, Centrion is a poignant reflection of the world in which it was born into, France's Belle Époque period, or the beautiful age. Like the Art Nouveau glass of Gaulle and the 
jewelry of René Lalique, or the furniture of Galliard, Cendrillon reflects a society that resisted the coldness of industrialism by seeking to find this beauty, love, and mystery in everyday life. But I can't think of a better way to end this lecture than to see this final scene where the fae arrives, reveals Cendrillon, and to quote the fairy tale, they all live happily ever after. Let's take a listen. Thank you so much for listening to episode 13 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope that you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes, or consider donating to the continuation of our podcast project at metguild.org podcast. 
And a big, big thank you to all of those who have already done so, left us some great reviews, some great comments, and donated to our cause. We always like hearing the kinds of topics and different things you are interested in hearing more about so that we can continue to provide you some entertaining and educational content in the future. I look forward to sharing the second half of the Met season with you, which I know will include some much-anticipated highlights, such as the three Donizetti Tudor Queen operas and some new productions. I am personally very excited for the new Electra, and much, much more. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.